Good afternoon, traders. Uh, thanks for joining me and Tendex on this uh, trader spotlight for our members. Um, today, we're going to cover um, one of the people that uh, I came across uh, a few years back and who's a head trader, uh, a very easy choice for a head trader at Convergent. Um, and uh, and we'll go through uh, a bunch of questions. The focus of this particular session is just to get to know Joe, uh, also known as Tendex, uh, and to find out what the background is. What is what? Uh, who is the person behind the messages we see in the head traders room or channel? Uh, the, the, I tried to minimize the number of questions so that Joe can take the conversation whichever way uh, he feels is useful for uh, the members. But first off, uh, just remember these are opinions. Derivatives trading is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. Joe, are you with us? Hey, Jing. Joe, to the microphone. Joe? Yep, I'm here. <laughs> hey, buddy. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. All right, good. All right, so let's, uh, let's start out. Let's uh, get going with just a, a, a background question. What got you interested in trading? How did you make it here? All right, well, I'm... You know, guys, I'm probably, you know, my path to trading and just the markets in general is probably similar to a lot of you in terms of where you sort of started to learn about the stock market and you saw these, you know, numbers, whether it was on the evening news or the newspaper or however it was, and you had this whole mysterious uh, talk about the stock market in the background. Maybe your parents talked about it, maybe your grandparents, maybe your friends. Um, for me, it, it started that way, and it was I really got interested in the 90s in the markets, and that was around the time when you started to have the dot-com bubble booming, and it was really the talk of the town, at least tech and everything, and just what was going on with the market, which was unprecedented at that time. And all anybody could really talk about was the next hot Internet stock and the next... Uh, Cisco and the next Microsoft and all of this and and that just really got me you know interested in well what is the market what is this all about so I just started picking up every book that I could find that had anything to do with with the stock market and just reading it so it was everything from your traditional more narrative things like Michael Lewis's Liars Poker to the more technical analysis type of focus work like John Murphy's technical analysis and I would just study all of that at the time because I was just so interested in what this this whole thing the stock market was called and how I could get rich trading the stock market so I just got really passionate about that and just could get my hands anything I could get my hands on that had to do with the markets I was involved with and at the time, I was doing a lot of odd lot jobs and things like that, and um, going to school. So it was, it became a. I had to scrounge to get money together to open up like one of my first trading accounts, which I did back with 
the company at the time was called Daytech. I think they got bought by Ameritrade somewhere around the line, and then I remember they got that. bought by TD. You remember those guys? Yeah. <laughs> so it was just like, you know, every day I would just load up the charts, and it would just be, I would trade literally technicals, and I was just, I mean, you had companies like uh, Cisco, which was trading for like $8 a share at the time. And this is after some of them bust as well. And it was just every day you just had these huge moves in the market, and it just became something that I would, I would just trade technically. I had no idea what I was doing at all, but you could just go from having, like, your account double in, like, a night, and it just became fascinating to me, like, oh, wow, this is so easy. And I thought I figured it out after, like, a year of, of doing this sort of on the side. But I had no... I had no training in the entire realm of like the fundamental side or the accounting side or any of that. So as I decided like, oh, what, what areas should I focus on? What type of market um, investment philosophy should I look into? It took me down the whole path of the fundamentals and the Benjamin Graham and the Warren Buffett and I, I learned all this stuff about accounting and, and sort of went down this whole entire value investor path as well. So after learning all of that and after finally when I went to get a job I ended up interning at a bunch of different financial firms. So I worked at some of the bigger buy side shops around like uh, your more institutional like leg masons and then I ended up interning at JP Morgan on an equity derivatives trading desk at the time. And that's where I sort of got my interest in the options world and just all this stuff about Black Shoals and pricing models. And this was like a whole new a whole new sector of the market for me that I just had no idea about at the time. It was all about stocks. And this was like my first real exposure to a totally different area of the market. And I had always been, I had been studying mathematics at the time, and I was always interested kind of in that theoretical side. So just the Black-Scholes model and like how it worked and how they priced things just kind of clicked with me. And I just fell in love with the option side of the business. So I went to work there doing basically equity derivatives. We did exotic derivatives trading, which is a little bit more complicated options, structures, and also some what we called flow trading or flow trading desks, which was mainly focused around index options and your plain vanilla, I would say, you know, your S&Ps, the ES, and your NQs, and, and those type of structures, trading them a little bit more actively. So I did that for several years, and I've also worked in a couple other different areas of the bank as well. So I've, I've done traditional, much more traditional, like, investment banking work. So if you think of, like, mergers and acquisitions, building like discounted cash flow models, merger models, and helping like shepherd through like multi-billion dollar transactions and leverage buyouts and things of that sort. And I also worked on our quantitative portfolio strategy desk, which was much more focused a little bit on the macro side of implementing portfolio strategy and, and how you think about structuring assets in a bigger, or I would say a higher time frame picture. So you look at more macroeconomic related um, releases and also just how more broadly do you structure a portfolio to take advantage of the, the bigger tailwinds that you see in the market. So a lot of returns you'll see come from almost 90% of returns can be explained by the asset classes that you are investing in. And a lot of institutions put a lot of focus in that and learning how to divvy up 
whatever portion of their assets into fixed income and bonds and gold and, and equities and so forth. So it basically took me down that route. I spent many years doing that as well. Ended up leaving my firm at the time and left to start a fund with my boss from J.P. Morgan. Did that for a few years and then decided to strike out independently myself, which is basically what takes me to where I am now. Excellent. Wow. That's quite a path. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's been a uh, – it's, it's one of those paths where – you know, you've, you've got an opportunity. I mean, I was fortunate in the sense that I got an opportunity to see many sides of the business. So I've, I've seen it from the brokerage side, like when I was a lot younger and we dealt a lot more on the client-facing side as well as from the trading side and seeing how the institutional, how we manage risk there from an institutional perspective. I mean, most of my experience there is much more on an options and equity-related link basis than it is on for example, just pure flow trade, like futures trading, but also just seeing how corporations in what we call in the business strategics, how they think about managing their, their equity exposure, not only to their own company, like buybacks and stuff like that, but also we dealt with companies that you wouldn't even think of as being in the trading business, but they are. So this would be like airlines, um, aircraft leasing type companies, um, oil companies like ExxonMobil and all these guys, even like some of your agricultural players like Cargill, several of the others, Monsanto, they're all pretty active in the market to some extent, whether it's hedging some type of risk. It could be as simple as currency risk. It could be energy-related risks like their crude oil exposure at an airline, which might be very different from the exposure that an oil company has and so forth. So it just gives you an appreciation, I think, for the complexity that underlies the, the markets. And when we speak about the markets, we're not just talking about the futures market. We're not just talking about the stock market. I mean, we're talking about truly deep, liquid, interrelated markets across all of the asset classes. And some of that, um, some of their interaction uh, may also be their own portfolio, right? So someone like uh, exactly, uh, I think Apple has what, like two hundred and fifty billion dollars in cash or something. Yeah, I mean, something must, like that. Yeah, they must have to spend a lot of money and go through a lot of pain to invest that as well, right? Yeah, I mean, there a large portion of that cash, I believe, is in short-term, some type of short-term marketable securities, which would be like. Generally, most of it's fixed income of some sort. They, but they also went through this entire process about two years or three years ago, where they started to monetize some of that. Uh, what they would call it is like your capital structure. If you, depending on how much equity or debt or cash you might have, Apple became in this position where they were their capital structure was very heavily cash weighted, as you mentioned, and they didn't have a lot of debt or what we call leverage in the business. And theoretically, there's an optimal amount of debt that you want to maximize basically your cost of capital. And all of these businesses are involved in trying to maximize that, how efficient they are being run. And Apple was one of those companies that said, hey, we have way too much cash. We need to do something with this, but we don't want to go make a big acquisition. So they started to convert some of that cash into short-term debt, and some longer-term debt instruments. So they could be a little bit more levered in terms of their capital structure and, and operating a little bit more efficiently. But that's true across all of the companies. 
So, I mean, they're actively involved in all of these markets as well, okay. some more than others, obviously. All right. Well, the, the next follow-on question is, having worked at uh, a, an execution desk or a trade desk, having been exposed to options, uh, Black Shoals, all that stuff, at a major firm, I mean, J.P. Morgan is, I mean, this is, this is a, an institution that bailed out the U.S. government <laughs> you know, 100 years ago or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're huge. Um, what were the positive aspects of working for one of these huge institutions uh, who we know are, you know, the OTF yeah. in the market, right? They're the higher time frame participant. They're the ones that can move things directionally. You covered some of that a little bit where you said you had so much exposure. But what did you take away? What are the positives you took away from being a part of this type of setup? Well, you know, the nice thing about being at, at J.P. Morgan was that we weren't Bear Stearns. So that was a, that was a plus. <laughs> Obviously, that's a, a different topic for a different day. But that, that was a period of time, you know, talking about the government bailing out institution or J.P. Morgan bailing out institutions 100 years ago. I mean, just in 2008, I can tell you it was just a, it was a crazy scenario at that time just being at, at, at all, any of these bulls bracket firms, but particularly like, you know, Lehman Brothers went under, uh, Bear Stearns was another bank that was the first one to go under that we actually bought at the time. And it was like $2 a share was what we offered to buy them for. And I remember walking across the street at the time and there was um, somebody had taken a $2 bill and taped it to Bear Stearns doors <laughs> on the day that we bought them for $2 and you know CNBC was all over there and it was just a big thing. We had guys working around the clock you know, trying to model out what this exposure was at, at Bear and obviously that was March of 2008 so Lehman didn't even happen until the fall of that period and that was the impetus pretty much behind Le letting Lehman go bust was the fact that they um, had pretty much we bailed out Bear but anyhow I'm running a little off topic there but that was you know one of the I, I would say just in, in a broader sense here the some of the benefits of working for a larger institution would be something that you can also get at, at smaller places as well and I would say that's the the camaraderie and the teamwork and just being around people who truly like love what they're doing and I know that might sound a little cheesy in a way, but it's very true and it matters a lot. And I think being able to learn from those people is, is probably one of the, the largest benefits of just being at, at an organization in general. You get exposure to a lot of people doing different things. And I think at a large institution versus a small one, that dichotomy is a little bit exacerbated in the sense that you have a lot of people doing a lot of different things. So it's not just a prop firm where everybody's kind of trading uh, a, a similar type of instrument across a similar periodicity. I mean, when you work on a, on a big trading floor, there's 300, 500, you know, 1,000 people. There, you might have multiple floors. The, the fixed income desk might not even be on the same floors as the equity desks. Um, you know, the guys that are trading uh, derivatives are trading almost siloed from the, the cash equities guys who are literally like 
maybe two or three desks away from you, and you might never talk to them. They might work almost different hours than you, even though you're both working U.S. hours. So you make friends with some of those people, and you get those experiences, which is, which is a very different world from just operating in, in a silo on your computer trading multiple instruments. So it, I think that's probably one of the benefits, one of the biggest benefits of being at one of those places. Hmm. You also, I would say, one other thing is you just have a, and, and you would, you learn to appreciate this when you work at a, a bigger firm just in general or institution is that the structured learning opportunities, I think, are better. So by that, I mean a firm like JP or, or Goldman or Merrill have the resources to invest in a top-tier educational program for their junior people that are coming in. You know, they have three-month-long summer programs that you basically get enrolled in and that you're taught by professors from, let's just say, in New York at NYU and you're taught by some of the senior bankers and, and traders on the desks and, and they make this a priority. So it is a very, very structured learning program, and you don't necessarily get that at some of the smaller places. So to me, I would say those are probably the biggest, most favorable aspects of being at one of those institutions. So exposure and, and just education, continuing development. Continuing development exposure. So now we a move lot, on to – oh, go ahead. I was just going to say a lot, a lot of people have, a, have this sense that, that like there's a – a difference between, for example, being at Citibank or being at Merrill Lynch or being at J.P. Morgan or being at KeyBank or being at, you know, Raymond James. It, it's actually like the functions that you're performing are very similar across all these institutions. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily the, that the individual institution, you're going to learn so much more. You might even have an unpleasant experience at one of the uh, more premier ones than you would have at a smaller one but it's just the exposure to the breadth of financial knowledge that you're, that you're garnering that's really the, the difference. Yeah, so coming in as a junior, it's like you're just, a, the world's your or you're, you're oyster, you're a clean slate, and you're just getting this yep. big buffet of opportunities um, early on, and that's really a huge advantage, right? So you wouldn't want to yeah. come out of, come out of uh, college with a finance degree or something and then go directly into doing your own business without having seen what others are doing or offering. What are the negatives of being in, in uh, working for the 800-pound gorilla? So I would say, and there's plenty of negatives, trust me, the first one that would pop off the top of your head is that you will just, you, you work a lot, particularly at these at these really big firms. I mean, and, and not that that's a negative per se, but I mean it, it is. It becomes your life when you work at one of these places. At least when you're when you're a younger guy, that's with without a doubt the truth. I mean, there was there was times when I'm not joking. Like I literally would work hundred hour weeks or more. Um, I wouldn't go home at night. Sometimes, sometimes I would be there all night, depending on what was going on, and then you know the next morning I would just, or the continuation of the evening into the morning, I would just go like take a shower at the gym at the time, and then just go right back to the desk and and keep working on whatever it was we were working at that time. And I mean that's generally true when you're a younger guy and you're you're basically fresh meat coming in, but it's it's a tough lifestyle, it really is. So 
that's you know a negative from a from a work life balance perspective that's a negative um i would say another big one is that you don't have the same freedom to do the things that you do independently as you do at a large firm because you're you're restricted in many ways so what i mean by this is you can't trade freely when you're working for a financial institution like that because there's a lot of restrictions um you might it might not even be you it might be the firm. Let, let's take for example right now uh tesla as many of you know is in the news and elon musk is saying that he wants to take tesla private and he's trying to secure funding to do this and to do that he has to employ some type of advisor in this case Supposedly, he solicited Goldman Sachs to work for them. Since the people at Goldman are now working on this deal, it, it, it might be a small group just within that investment bank, but they're working on this deal. Tesla becomes a restricted stock. You can't do anything with Tesla as an individual. If you already own Tesla stock, you have to hold that stock until it comes off the restricted list. Like there's no, you can't trade it. You can't trade any of its competitors. You can't do all types of things around that. So there becomes a lot of restrictions like that. You have time restrictions, like you can't trade freely. You can't just um, decide, oh, you know, I want to buy the ES this morning at 10.15, and I'm going to sell it at 10.30. No, you can't do that. You've got to get approval to do all of these type of things. And they might not even let you trade some of these products, some of these derivatives products, because of the view of, of leverage and all of this. Not, not, only, not, that, not uh, only that. Go ahead. Go. Now, I was going to say, not only that, and that, that's just your, that's on the personal side, but on the professional side as well. Like, when you're trading derivatives and your job is to trade equity derivatives or fixed income interest rate derivatives or cash equities or whatever your role is, like, that is your role. You're not going to all of a sudden, you know, one day be trading equity-linked derivatives and then the next day trade crude oil. Or, you know, the next day go work, um, you know, on some deal, some M&A deal or something like that. Or decide that, oh, you know what, I don't really like to trade derivatives. I think it would be much better trading the interest rate curve. Like, you can't do that. You're in, that's your job. You're in that area. And you get the pluses, obviously, of becoming a specialist in that. But you have the negatives of having a very narrow kind of frame. So if that market uh, dies, like the, the, the yield curve spread um, trade died, uh, you're basically having to uh, do some politics or go through the corporate ladder to get transferred to a different desk. Is that what needs to happen? Um, yes, basically. I mean, a, a real-life example would be like if I go back to 2005, 6, 7, right? What was hot in 2005, 6, 7? It was real estate. Like real estate was the thing. It was the booming thing. So the business that was operating on like our mortgage-backed securities desk was huge. The, you know, the opportunity in real estate investment banking was huge. The leveraged buyouts that were going on amongst a lot of the most common real estate type firms like the holding company for Realogy or holding company Realogy that owns like Coldwell Banker and a lot of these other companies and the U.S. was, you know, they were doing $6 billion, $9 billion, $10 billion deals. And then all of a sudden, that market collapsed. 
you know, in 2008. And what do you think happened to the volumes across that entire market? It just dried up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have friends who were working on the mortgage-backed desk, and a lot of them got laid off because there was just no business anymore, and they just didn't need as many traders. Not only that, people who were working on that desk, even if they were fortunate enough to keep their jobs, they did, there was no business. So you're, the, the money that you make when there's no business as it's allocated to a particular desk, right? The mortgage desk is not doing anything, so they're not going to give them huge bonuses or whatever. However you want to look at it, your compensation goes down. So, you know, it, it becomes one of those situations where you might not have anything to do or you might get laid off or something. So it's just one of those uh, components that, that can make it, again, your breadth could be narrow. And if you get laid off from a mortgage desk or an interest rate spread desk or something like that, what do you do after that? Mm. Your expertise right? is very uh, specialized. Now, uh, just to clarify, one of the reasons you may not be able to trade a stock or a derivative may also be because someone somewhere is doing a deal within the firm you work with, even in a different office, and there's a there's a compliance regulation that says, you know, because you can't trade on insider uh, information. If you're doing a deal for Tesla, it would be a huge information advantage to uh, be able to trade on Tesla while you're figuring out if the deal's going to go through or not. Um, exactly. But also, you may not have anything to do with Tesla, but you're also part of an equities desk that's focusing on something else. And in your own personal portfolio, you want to own Tesla, but you can't without approval. So you can't be trading some sort of a time-restricted plan. You kind of have to uh, wait, send it in, and wait for somebody to look at what you're doing and get approval. And then you have to send your brokerage statements to them for them to monitor your activity, just in case you might have a buddy within the group doing that Tesla deal, you know? So, yep, exactly. Not, not just your brokerage statements. You can only have an account at certain brokers. So, like, you might not even be able to have an account, let's just say, at stage five or wherever else it may be. You know, she's using that as an example. But, you know, I remember um, when I had first joined, there was only, like, like online brokers weren't even, like, a huge thing at the time. Like, they were, it was – people would still do a lot of transactions through Chase and, you know, uh, their Bank of America or whatnot. And um, there was only a few online brokers that you were allowed to use. So you could use, like, I think E-Trade at that time maybe like Fidelity or something like that and that was it. So if you had all of your capital somewhere else, you had to uh, move it into one of these one of these selective brokers so they could monitor it and it becomes like a specialized account. And just you can't just trade any periodicity either that you want. So let's just say you're more naturally a short-term trader, doesn't matter. Like you have to hold everything for 30 days. That's mm. the rule. Mm. So it's things like that, you know, it's just compliance restrictions and the like. That makes it difficult. What misconceptions might the trading public, all of us, have about institutional participants in the market? What sorts of things do you hear that make you cringe about what the OTF or what JP Morgan might be doing? All right. Well, the first thing that makes me cringe is the word OTF. <laughs> like, I just hate the word OTF. I feel like it, it, it primes the individual to think of, every, like, 
the other side of the market, anything that's higher time frame or an institution or something, as like some monolithic entity. As if it's like us versus them, you know, retail versus the, oh, it's the OTF that's stepping in here. Like, that's just ridiculous because the, the for lack of a better word, the OTF is just so many different players with so many different intents doing so many things across so many different markets that people start to ascribe to the OTF like they're in there with some intent to push the market up or to push the market down. It, it just doesn't work like that. Like, to kind of go back to a little bit of this compliance um, issue, to tie this in with that, when you're a big institution, you can't just do anything that you want. Like you have risk, as traders, we have risk limits. You've got to go to your manager to be able to get approval to do certain things. Um, you can't just put on any trade that you want at any particular time. And especially if it's like not within your mandate, like I was saying, you're not on an equities desk, you're not going to start pushing the equities around. And a lot of people tend to think of the, the OTF as always in this higher time frame or the, the institutions, as I generally would call them, as having intent with what they're doing. And that's not necessarily true in most cases, in a lot of cases. There's a huge difference on the institutional side between what we would term the buy side and the sell side of the business. Wall Street, as, as, a, as a moniker, is largely the sell side of the business. Wall Street makes its money from selling some type of service. They're not, they're generally not there, and, and you can see this like when the Volcker Rule, which was a, a rule named after the old Federal Reserve Chairman Institute did, I think in 2008 or 2009, to try to restrict the proprietary trading of the investment banks, the, what they were called the, the institutions that were needed for stability of the system. They didn't want them wagering their own capital on speculative positions, so they basically instituted this rule to try to get rid of the proprietary trading desks and most of these big firms, systematic you know, type firms. And, and what that means is that if they're going to do that, like, I mean, what are these guys doing? Do you, do you think proprietary trading was ever a really big part of a lot of these institutions' business? It's not really, like, at least in the sense of like directional trading. Like a lot of these institutions are not trading with a, a strong directional intent. Most of it is, a lot of it, and particularly the ones you hear about in the news that are, are profitable every single day and all this stuff, they're, they're making markets in some form or another because they have the institutional capability and the infrastructure to be able to do that. But a lot of people are thinking that this, this, the institutions are, are pushing the market around when it, it's not really that at all. So I think that's just a huge misconception. So you're saying the, the system that never lost a single day for whatever, four years, six years, whatever, I don't remember what the news line is, that's more probably of a, some sort of an arbitrage system or a co-located kind of uh, system that's front-running orders or something like that, like a high-frequency type thing versus a moving average crossover type of directional um, position. Uh, type of approach. Uh, that's what you're saying, right? 
Well, uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying that they are manipulating the market in any way. They're actually performing a needed function in the market by matching, in, in large extent, depending on whatever products you're looking at. There's a lot of, in the most simplistic terms, it's basically matching buyers and sellers in yeah. some type of fashion. Most of the big money made in a lot of the, the, the large institutions, not, not the fund managers, not the buy side, mutual funds, and a lot of the hedge funds, but most of the institutional bank desks and things like that, they're making their money off the spread of providing some service by connecting either maybe it's like a corporation, like let's just say um, you know, a company wants to go public. When they go public, take their stock, put it on the NYSE, whatever it may be, the NASDAQ. They want to float their company, take it public, sell shares to the public. When they do that, they have to engage an investment bank. An investment bank will then have to find some way to sell that stock, basically sell it to Fidelity or you know all the other fund managers out there. Maybe it's PIMCO on the fixed income side, all these other guys, all the hedge funds basically connecting those buyers with the sellers of the equity and then they earn money off of that performing that service and then when it goes public they have to make sure that the stock goes off without a hitch and that there's enough liquidity there and that they control it from falling too low or rising too high and we're in the market basically trying to control that uh, the amount of transactions that are taking place there and that's performing a service that's an IPO right there, but I mean, there's many other cases all during the day. You might have a company like General Motors that they need to hedge off some of their steel risk, so they engage our derivatives desk, and they want some complicated structure to do something, but you can't just go into the market and say, hey, I want to you know, buy some call options on steel. Like They need something that's more tailored to them, so these institutions will structure these type of products, and then they will sell them. You know, they will match, again, matching buyers and sellers and earning type of, some type of spread for who wants to take on that risk and who wants to sell it or, or lay it off and performing that service all the time. That's a, a, a little bit on the corporate side, but it's going on all the time. And then the desk, we may need to hedge off our risk get, like, because now we have this, this entire position that we've taken on because we're trying to do something for a corporate. So we might need to offset our position somehow. So let's just say we're long the S&P, just hypothetically. So we might need to get rid of that risk by also going short the S&P somehow. And we have no directional you know, thing at all. We're just trying to have no risk and basically earn our money through this type of spread transaction. So what I'm trying to say is that these are, these are valued functions that basically grease the wheels of the financial markets and that you don't necessarily see when you're just looking at, oh, I want to go long or, or I want to go short or the institution is buying because of this or they're selling because of this. Like you don't know why they're doing the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and you don't win, sorry, and you, just one last thing, you don't win you know, every trading day of every quarter of every year by picking direction like this doesn't work like that yeah the probabilities you're, you're, are the you're, same <laughs> you're basically saying the the way they make money is not on some directional bet uh or commissions or something they get some sort of a fee for putting the package together for the customer but they make money by earning that fee and then hedging the risk for the customer and for themselves from 
making sure that they actually fulfill the obligation they have to that customer. That's where their the the bulk of their uh, income might come in. But I I, I want to uh, just who are you doing like HF? Who are you doing like HFT and you're just doing thousands and thousands and thousands of you know transactions at the tick level, the you know microsecond speeds. You can't even see it. Providing liquidity, just like the market makers used to do, and basically just doing this with uh, you know over and over and over again, law of large numbers. I mean, you got a thirty percent edge and you execute ten thousand trades a day. You know you're going to come out ahead. Mm -hmm. um, just just as an aside, and I, I know we're running a little bit behind here. But um, how, just briefly, how does a company, how does J.P. Morgan protect an IPO from from the stock going too far down? An IPO does not have options to trade against or to hedge to hedge against. What do they do there? Do they they so they, they don't step in with their own money, obviously. You you have an allocation in like a lot of these IPO agreements and these contract they basically contract with the company control a certain amount of the float and they have things called like a green shoe provision which allows you to float either more of that IPO out to the market maybe you can issue more of it to people who wanted to have an allocation of it and then you would support when the stock is out there and it's actually publicly trading our desks will take on the risk of, of buy I mean we will buy the stock to keep it from falling below a certain level. And that's a risk that we take and that's why we also try to price it appropriately. And generally that's also why you'll see IPOs be priced a little bit under, sometimes massively under, but that's a mistake. But generally a little bit under what we perceive to be as fair value so that the market will be able to take it to fair value which will be above you know, whatever the going IPO price was. And everybody that bought it at the IPO price makes money. It also takes risk off of the bank. And you do, you have you can manage it much more effectively. Okay. That's it. Uh, that's it in a rough, you know, in a nutshell. I mean, it can get more complicated, but. So your point of that is the other time frame, which, by the way, originally uh, when Peter Stadelmeyer came up with that in in his in his view on the market, it just meant anybody trading a higher time frame than you are. Right, yep. which which with a, in our time frame is pretty much everybody except for the, you know, scalping yeah. or high frequency scalping machines or whatever. So OTF represents whoever else is interacting in the market that is in a higher time frame than we are. Uh, just to be clear, what what that means, uh, and what you're saying yeah. is it's not one contiguous like this, not this big Death Star that you know starts moving in a direction. It's it doesn't it represents um, it represents many, many participants of of whom we don't know for, for whom we don't know what the intent is with every trade. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the term OTF in that sense. I just when you use a lot of times, I hear people use the word. They it, it just primes their mind for this death star, you know, this monolithic entity, as if the OTF is moving all together, and this is not true. You know, you like you look at the options market, like. You don't like I mentioned something the other day about the whole Max Payne theory. Like the thing you have to understand is that you don't know whether somebody is buying a call option because they're bullish, are they buying a call option because they're spreading it with some other type of option? Are they buying a call option because they sold futures or stock or whatever it is above there? Like you have no idea what these what what is like the break evens of any of these positions. 
Like it's really hard when somebody says, oh, you know, 10,000 call options bought an X stock, but you don't know, maybe they're short the stock and they're hedging some something. I mean, there's ways to figure out with a little bit more accuracy sometimes what the intent is of these participants, but it's a truly complicated and interrelated markets across all of these, uh, you know, futures, equities, cash equities, um, you know, all the derivatives. It's just not a straight line. Okay. Um, what got you interested in futures trading? So for me, this actually harks back to my options. I used to, and I still do, manage uh, an options book where I would hedge most of my risk by engaging in the futures market. So I never really traded futures for the directional implications at all. I would look at my portfolio and I would try to have what we call, on the option side, it would, call, it would be called like delta neutral. Basically, what that means is if you think of delta as direction, it's basically becoming directionally neutral. I don't want to have a directional position. I'm not trying to gain edge from the direction it moves. I'm trying to gain edge, in this particular case, from the volatility and how, so that could volatility moves both ways. So if I want to isolate a particular risk, I want to isolate the risk that I'm focused on where I'm extracting value is the volatility risk. So I want to get rid of all the other risks. I want to get rid of the directional risk in particular. There's like interest rate risk, there's other things, but the big one is the directional risk. So if I had a portfolio that was long 100 deltas, which means just say I'm long, if for every dollar move I, I, I would lose $100, I can go into the futures market and I can offset that risk by either selling or buying a particular amount of futures so that if the market went up, my options portfolio would go down and they would net each other out and it would be zero or vice versa. So when you are hedging, there is, you can hedge continuously so that every time your delta moves from zero, when it moves to one, you hedge. When it moves to two, you hedge. When it moves to three, you bring it back to zero. When it moves to 10, you bring it back to zero. When it moves, you know, anytime it moves, up or down, you can hedge. But what's the big problem with that? The big problem with that is it's costly. It's really expensive to be hedging all the time. You, you engage transaction costs. So when should you hedge? Should you hedge when it moves 10 away from you? Should you hedge when it moves 100 away from you? I'm just using random units here, so don't ascribe any value to that. There's an art to that. There's an art of knowing when to hedge your risk. It's not a pure science. There's a lot of theoreticals behind um, the optimal point of hedging, but it's, it, it's not a science by any means. So if the market moves up, it would be nice to know, is, is the futures about to turn around and go again? Is, has it gone up 10 points and is it about to roll over? Or has it gone up 10 points and is it about to run 20 points? Having a sense of like how the, how the futures might move will tell me, okay, it's gone up 10 points, but I don't need to worry about this right now because I, I have a good feeling based on the structure that the futures will just revert right back and then my delta will be back in line. So, this brings me to the futures trading. I was hedging much more in like a mathematical model. So I wanted to get a better sense of how can I gauge the direction 
that the futures were likely to go or like when it crossed key thresholds so that I know when I should engage with the market in the futures market to hedge my risk. And that's what brought me into this whole, well, how can I figure out the direction that the futures are going? Well, I could study auction market theory maybe, or I'll study volume profiling, or I'll look a little bit more closely at the order flow and try to figure out what, what's, going, what's going on underneath the hood. And that's what got me into futures trading, got me into the directional futures trading. When did that happen? <sighs> probably about, probably about maybe like eight, ten years ago, mm. I started to systemize, like look into the directional side of futures trading a little bit more. At the time, I was using, it wasn't like you're completely ignorant of it, right? Like you, you might you know where the 200-day moving average is, and you know where yesterday's high and yesterday's low were, and all those type of things. So it's not like you're completely ignorant of it, but was trying to get a better, more fine-tuned sense of where I thought the futures might go so that when I hedged my risk, I would have a, a little bit more of an informed understanding there. Are you hedging for a specific time period of the day? Are you hedging for end-of-day movement uh, or post-end-of-day movement? Or you might have exposure overnight, or did it matter what time of day you're trying to project your bias for? Well, yeah, it depends on whether you're talking about institutionally or personally. Um, institutionally, we used to always hedge our delta at the end of the day at the time. So it would be like, you know, when 3.30 rolled around Eastern time, we would just be in the market just, you know, selling indiscriminately, whatever it was, or buying whatever it was just to neutralize our delta. It didn't matter what it was. Like we had, you know, 50,000 deltas or whatever we need to get rid of it, we would just neutralize it at the end of the day to try to bring our, our risk exposure back in the line just as a broad basis for your portfolio. For me, I don't, um, there's no particular time of day. I'm more focused on the risk metrics. So I'm just trying, you know, some days maybe I, I won't hedge anything at all. Maybe I won't hedge for the whole week depending on what the market does. But it's when your risk gets when your risk gets out of line, when you have too much exposure to uh, a risk factor like direction, that's when I hedge it. So it's all dependent on when, when the risk happens. Could this, be, could this be part of what explains the closing range trade, not fading the closing range trade, you know, the, 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 the last 20 minutes of trading? Also, the volume that tends to come in on a 60-minute bar chart or something the volume that tends to come in at the end of the day sometimes exceeds the volume at the beginning of the day yeah. into the, the last couple of bars. Um, it, okay. it, a lot of that is that. I mean, it's, you know, you've got market orders as well, a lot of mutual funds. They initiate most of their, their orders at the end of the day. They're not doing it in the middle of the day. There's a lot of, you know, analysis and all this type of stuff going on in the middle of the day, and then the orders are just put in near the end of the day. But these orders that the mutual funds and you know, hedge funds, different people are putting in, affects the pricing mechanism of all these underlying stocks and the indices and so forth, which filters into if you've got a derivatives portfolio of some sort, it changes the risk there. So now, you know, one guy comes in here and wants to buy a million shares of Apple, but, you know, you've got this huge Apple options position. So all of a sudden, Apple starts going up because this guy wants to buy at the end of the day. So now you've got to start selling some Apple, to, you know, to offset that risk so that overnight you're not stuck with this huge, this huge risk that you have to take. So that's why you get a lot of that stuff at the end of the day. You just have so many competing players doing different things and the pricing mechanism itself 
is creating dynamically feedback, which causes other people to adjust their positions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is this is why, honestly, you know, from you as soon as like you can, the the only true predictability is really like at the tick level. As soon as as soon as the market moves two or three ticks away from wherever you are, just using like an, an equity index or something, I mean, the entire market, the, the, the profile gets changed. Like the participants are, have, are changing. And the fact that it moved a little bit away from this area changes who's involved. And it changes how it affects how somebody views something. And then that person comes in and they interact with the market, which changes how the market is. Like it's constantly feeding into itself and changing itself. George Soros has a good uh, term for this. I think he calls it like reflexive market theory or something like that. I have to look yeah, it up. Yeah, it's like a domino effect. I, I, I come in and I sell a 10 lot. That 10 lot registers at some price. It pulls a moving average or some other metric that somebody else is using that now triggers that trade and so on and so forth. And then that creates kind of a cascading effect. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, and it's happening all the time. That's the thing that people don't understand or they, they frequently are just not aware of because you're tied up into what's going on at the moment. You think that it's predictable, but it's, it's not. At every single moment, the market is doing this. At every single moment, it's changing and impacting itself and feeding on itself. Like, let's just say I'm a, you know, I'm a huge trade, a bond trader or something, and, and all of a sudden I'm you know, I'm at home, but then my kid starts crying in the other room, and I've got to, I've got to go in the other room and, and give him a bottle or something. So I go into the other room and I give him a bottle, and you know, I'm not here when the market does whatever it does because I just left for five minutes, and then I come back and I'm like, oh crap, oh shit, now I'm going to enter, you know, a 500 lot in here, and the market will move when I enter that 500 lot in there because now I just came back to my desk. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I'm trying to say. Like, you don't know like, when this stuff is going to happen, and it's always happening. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not the, the futures don't drive the cash, and the cash doesn't drive the futures, and the options don't drive the futures or drive the cash or the fixed income market driving the equity market. Like, it's much more complex than that. It might seem like it is at some point, and in some cases it might for a brief spurt of time. But it's much more dynamic and complicated and interrelated than that. And it's a, sometimes the dog is wagging. Would you say Sorry. that I think you're about to get to it with the dog wagging the tail thing? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it that relationship <laughs> is changing very often. But uh, do you do you have you had any experience with that change in that interrelationship to the point that? that change can also be somewhat predictable to a, to a degree. It's predictable over a series of occurrences, but it's not predictable, I don't believe, on an, on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it may be true over enough, you give it enough occurrences, it may, there may be some type of truth to certain things happening, but on a case-by-case -case basis, and on the the more narrow you you go in your time frame, the more true it is. Like the tick level is truly predictable. I mean, this is what the market makers are doing. Um, you can predict what the next tick will be, but once it moves a certain amount of ticks away, now you've just reshuffled all the participants, and 
the predictability of it drastically declines. But over enough occurrence, there's no question that we, we extract edge from identifying certain patterns of activity, but that edge is only realizable over a series or sequence of occurrences. It's not any given occurrence, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in my opinion at least. What key skills can you identify from your um, institutional days, that should say your institutional days, uh, which are still key to your approach to trading today? So I think probably the main, the main skill would be just how to do analysis and how to think about doing analytical work around trading whether that's technical analysis type of stuff, and I don't mean like moving average crossovers and stuff, I mean more like technically based, so let's just say like the volatility, you know, sigmas, measuring statistics, trying to find out double tops, double bottoms, how often does this occur? I'll tell you in my institutional days, everything was much, much, the periodicity tended to be a lot longer focused and even then we thought it was short-term focus because you're looking at days, weeks, quarter, or whatever it is. But it, it's, it's much longer in terms of studies than we do here at like the tick level. It's, very, it's not very common for you to dig down that minute at, the, at, at many of the institutional analyses. But learning how to do them, it doesn't matter what your periodicity is, whether it's daily, weekly, you know, 15 minutes, or tick level, Learning how to do that, learning how to think about that, how to structure a study, and then how to interpret it afterwards, I think that's, that's valuable in almost any endeavor that you engage in. But in particular, it's something that I've carried over from my institutional time to now. Um, that would probably be the biggest. I would say other things would be just understanding how the markets work understanding how the how like when you're talking about who's a trap buyer who's a trap seller or who's who's involved in a particular market like the depth of of the participants in those markets i think that that's something that's a skill set that's not necessarily easily visible from your desk at home but it's something that that you learn to pick up when you're working for a firm and you just have to just because the the clients that you're working for as well are just their their needs are Various. Okay. Um, what products are you most active in currently? So for me, I basically trade either, I do a lot with equity options in particular, which I specialize mostly in what I would call volatility arbitrage. And that's using mainly equity-based underlying options. I also trade the ES futures pretty actively, as you know, and I also trade crude oil futures as well. Most of the diversification probably would come, I'm, I'm more likely to put on a, a position in like fixed income or the currencies, probably in the options market than I would in an outright. Mm -hmm. I might hedge, like I mean I've sold gold futures and, and things, or bought gold futures against like, you know, some position I might have in options, but I don't usually trade those outright, and particularly not so in the short term. Mm, okay, so equity options, then uh, ES, crude oil, 
And if you're doing yeah. anything in treasuries or any other metals or anything else, you're more likely to do that in options. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, just because I feel like you have to have um, you have to have a whenever you're trading one of these products directionally or in the day or speculating on the direction, I, I you should have a good sense of how it moves, the participants in it. I just don't have that that level of knowledge in, in some of those other markets. Like I could tell you where I think gold might go, where the you know interest rates might go, but I, I'm not I'm not a truly informed participant there. So it's just much easier for me to say, oh, I think over X, a longer time period, that I think the interest rate features might do this, and I can structure some position and options that defines my risk. That's just easier for me to, to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's your current trading time frame? Uh, and, and a secondary question, to just to kind of ball that up with your answer to that, is do you trade multiple periodicities and time frames, or you have, are you... Are you set on a time frame when yep. you're actively trading? Yeah, so I train multiple periodicities and time frames, and I think that is a benefit for everyone, honestly. It, if you can do so, it's nice to be able to do that because it, it diversifies your exposure, not only along products but also along time scale so it gives you some non-correlation there if you're trading intraday versus if you're establishing a longer term let's just say an intermediate position maybe it's more of a swing maybe it's days or weeks like the the correlation between trading intraday and trading over a swing model can have benefits by diversifying that so for me i mean anything that i do in the vol, vol arb space is always longer term periodicity so it's generally something around 20 to 60 days i usually don't go much further out than 60 days whenever i'm trading any type of option um and i don't tend to go anything lower than 20 days i mean in the rare circumstances just because of the type of the type of trading that i'm doing um mm -hmm. so most of my trading is probably done in that in that periodicity on the futures directional side speculation, it's all intraday and it's all water flow driven. Mm. Okay. Uh, without giving away anything you want to keep to yourself, what are your favorite tools and why? For trading, let's focus on just trading futures or, or options on futures. Yeah. So for me, as you know, I mean, a huge, a huge tool for me is the footprint or the volume scope. I think personally being able to, and it's, and it's also because of the periodicity at which I'm trading the futures, I'm looking for much smaller moves than, I'm not looking for big swings, I'm looking for dislocations in the order flow of some sort. The, the, the footprint just allows me to see things structurally that I, I, I can't see in many other tools. So I can get a sense of like, how the how aggressive the participants are, where they're positioning themselves, where they're getting trapped, where they're not. Um, that sense of being able to actually see numerically the numbers as well, and I know I've discussed this with you before in one of our other um, talks that it's just, I've always considered myself much more of a geometry or uh, algebra person than a geometry person. In other words, I like to see the numbers more so than just see the the chart the shapes yeah the charts so that that is in the intraday periodicity that is something that 
You know, I just I spend a lot of time focused on it, but not in of itself. It needs to have context around it, which brings me to the second tool, which is basically my decision zones, which is uh, what you call stock zones. It's me being able to pretty much look at different levels on the chart, whether uh, across periodicity. So I'm looking, I'm looking from the higher time frame and I'm shrinking in, you know, I might be looking at daily or weekly and then I'm going into the day and the hour and the minute and then yesterday's range and I'm trying to find out what are the levels that I think are likely to attract some sort of two-way participation. I don't know whether they're going to buy or sell those levels. I don't know what's going to happen, but those those areas, those levels that I think are going to be psychologically important for the most amount of participants. So if you see something on your chart that's not visible to somebody who's trading in a swing time frame, that level becomes less relevant to me. I'm trying to sort of handicap those levels and get some zones around them. And that gives me the context of when I see the order flow approaching those areas, I can sort of gauge like, is what I anticipate to happen happening, in fact, happening in this area. I think those, being able to do that, see the context, put the context into, into certain levels, and then being able to react to it, is at a bare minimum, I mean, you can trade just knowing that. Well, that's One as good a plan as any, right? Uh, just yeah, defining, I mean. <laughs> defining where you ex expect a response to be and then only trading, even if it's with a fixed stop, fixed target, those specific areas. I mean, that's more of a yeah. point that most people I, I know have, you know? Just know the context. Know, know the context of what's going on. Have tools that allow you to interpret that context and then look for confirmation of that. And then you have to react to it. I mean, whatever does that for you is what's going to make you successful. For me, I mean, those are the two primary, I mean, to get to some of those levels, I'm looking at volume profile and I'm looking at, you know, things like swing highs, swing lows, um, you know, yesterday's range, the common things that everybody else can see. And I want the things that everybody else can see. I don't want levels that nobody else can see. The more people that can see a level, the more important it is, the more likely you're going to get some type of reaction there. And the more likely you can use that area to go long, short, whatever it may be. So on the future side, I think you know, those are the two most, three most powerful concepts, tools that I tend to use. I mean, I have other, I think when you widen out your periodicity a little bit more, you have to do some more analytical work around like maybe valuation or like modeling things. So for me, I have, I have more proprietary stuff that I use to like, for example, figure out whether the volatility in Microsoft is normal. What are they pricing in for the earnings release that they're about to have um, in the upcoming quarter? How does that compare to past quarters? How is the stock trading currently? And like building like an analytical framework like that, so like, like some type of models, which I have are things that I use actively and I would encourage other people to do so as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, gonna take a quick change, gonna change gears here real quick. Um, I want to poll the audience uh, before we get into the next question. So all of you there that are who are not attentive, please turn your attention to the screen. I want you to answer this question. Uh, I'm only going to give about a minute to do so. 
uh, but please take a moment and um, and choose what you believe to be uh, is a reasonable average monthly rate of return on your trading capital. So if you take your if you take your trading account, whatever money it has in it, what are your expectations in terms of uh, percent return per month on that capital? Uh, and the way to compute that is, let's say you have a $10,000 account uh, and you expect $1,000 a month to be generated from it. So that's, you know, uh, that, that's 10%. That would be the monthly rate of return on that capital. What would be your expectation? Uh, I'll leave this up for another 20 seconds. So please take a moment, be attentive, and uh, choose what you believe it to be. Or what you believe it, or what your expectations are. Five seconds, three, two, one. We're going to close that. Okay, we got uh, quite a bit of voting going on there. And then I have a secondary question before we get into the next question with uh, with Tendex here. It's a yes or no question. Do you currently track your rate on capital, your rate of return on capital? Do you actually track it? Just be honest. I don't know who voted which way. Uh, this is, it doesn't track that. It just tells me how many voted and what the votes are. Do you track your rate of return? Do you look at that on a monthly basis to figure out what you're doing with your money? In other words, are you losing X percent per month? Are you gaining X percent per month? Okay, so I'm going to keep that up for another 25 seconds. 80% of you have voted, almost. 15 seconds. Vote, vote, vote. 10 seconds. And 5, 4, 3, 2, one, so closing that with 80%. These are, just so Joe can see them, these are the results for your own use. Um, so about 70% of you expected more than 2% per month. And the reason I kept the numbers low is because I wanted to see if anybody's looking at, for one, I wanted to see if anybody's looking at the value of their account or the value that they're trading since we have a leveraged product. Um, and 70% of you expect around 70%, which me uh, around 2%, 2% or greater, 24% of you expect 1% to 2%. 1% to 2% means you expect a return of around 24% of your capital per year, uh, which is quite... Uh, which is quite, quite a lot for somebody who's maybe a, more of an investor. Uh, the second question, who's keeping track of it? This is what we got. A little over half of you track how much return you get. Just hopefully, if you're trading a shared account, your partner doesn't know about this. <laughs> if you're not tracking how their money's doing. <laughs> But let's move on to the question here, Joe, uh, to the next question. In your opinion, what is a reasonable rate of return on capital for a day trader? 
Okay, so the way the way that I would first go about answering this question is, you know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, and I know a lot of people that you know work in the industry and and trade on on different time frames and professionally. And honestly, if you look at any of the the officially audited tables of like hedge funds or mutual funds or CTAs, things like that, if you look at those audited results, I mean, these aren't people that are, you know, on Twitter saying I bought this and this did that or, or something like that. These are people that have to actually publish these results officially to investors. If you are generating a 20% return annually, you are a superstar. Particularly if you are doing that over multiple years. So I'm not talking one year you did it or you know you if you can generate consistently twenty percent annualized returns, you are a superstar. So just we need to establish what the base rate is, and that has to be where we start. So if the best in the world are doing something like that annualized over time, what makes it what makes you think that you're going to be able to do 10 times better than that? I mean, it's a legitimate question you should be asking yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. You are trading a leveraged product. You are trading a, a smaller periodicity. You're probably taking more risk per capital than, than most of the you know, larger funds are doing. They're trying to manage their not only manage their capital, but they're also managing their investors, which is a big difference. Because whenever you have huge, if you're trading your own account, you can afford to have big swings in your capital base because it's your money. But when you're managing other people's money, you know, that guy might say, oh, this guy is great. You know, he's got me 20% return for the last five years. The moment you get a 10% drawdown, they're going to be running for the hills. They're going to be like, get me out of this thing. He's busted. He's over. It's done. So that's a, that's a huge difference, and that's a huge advantage as an individual trader that you have because you don't have to manage those people's expectations. Would so, you also say that you don't have to trade as an individual um, and you don't have to stick to a, a disclosure document or a program that you've advertised as well so there's more leeway which can work for or against you? Is that an, an advantage or a disadvantage? Yeah, I think it's definitely an advantage. There is those there is those advantages that you have. You also don't have, for example, like a mandate, like I was discussing earlier. Like you don't have to just trade the ES, right? Like if the ES all of a sudden or stocks, let's just say stocks in general. Like most funds, it doesn't matter what type of fund you're running, unless you're like a, a multi-macro strategy fund, most of them have some type of mandate that they specialize in. Like if you're trading equities and that's what you you always trade, like you don't all of a sudden just because equities are slow say, oh, I'm I'm not going to trade equities anymore. I'm going to start trading bonds, or you know the oil market's been really hot lately. I'm going to go into oil. Like you can't do that. That's not what your investor signed on for you to do. So there's no doubt that there's benefits for the individual trader to be able to have that dynamic flexibility to be able to do that. So you know we can take our base rate, we can adjust up or down. I can tell you that I've run these numbers, you know, both theoretically 
and over long periods of time with actual results. And I think a return, if we're, we're looking at, let's just say, trading capital, so that means if, let's just say, you want to control, like, um, let's just say it's $5,000 of margin for the ES, and that's what you want per contract, $5,000 per contract, so you need $15,000 of capital in order to trade three contracts, and we'll just say you have $20,000 of capital to do that, to trade three contracts, which is a very reasonable, conservative type of trading um, program. And you want to risk something like, I don't, you know, one, one and a half to two percent per trade. I mean, if you're risking, if you, when you start to risk more than two percent of your capital per trade, you start to get in the realm of increasing your risk of ruin. So, you know, let's just look at numbers sort of like that, and then you can leverage it up however you want. I think it's very reasonable to expect a return to not expect. I think it's reasonable that you could get a return that is somewhere around two and a half times, maybe three times your trading capital. So if we're talking about a $20,000 account for a solid trader, you could get something around 60. That's two or three times your capital. What that ends up being is when you convert that, let's convert it to notional like SPY. So if you were trading the SPY, 500 SPY, the ETF, is basically equivalent to one ES contract. So if you were to trade three ES SPY, that would be equivalent to basically three contracts. And the, you know, the notional amount on that is like 400,000 something. So if you look at the return on that, you end up to get somewhere between the 13 to 20% annualized return on that capital which syncs up pretty closely with what you would find as, as the rough industry standard on a non-levered portfolio. Mm -hmm. that, 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 to me, you know, both in actuality and, and just running mathematical numbers and seeing this stuff over years, that to me seems it, like it, it, it's, it's reasonable for somebody who's following a plan. Obviously, when you start doing all types of other stuff, then, then I think these numbers are on the high side. I don't okay. think it's realistic for you to I, – I really don't think it's realistic for you to assume that you have a $25,000 account and you're going to make 10 times on your capital. To actually to me, have a sustainable uh, lifestyle, right? No. I mean, you're not – like, I, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying that it's unheard of. Of course it's – I mean, you know, Warren Buffett's the richest guy in the world, and he's got $50 billion or $60 billion, but there's one Warren Buffett. There's one Michael Jordan. You don't build a business model saying, I'm going to be Michael Jordan. Like, you need to build a business model based on reasonable expectations. And reasonable expectations are not, you know, five times your money, a 500, 600, 700% return year in and year out. If I can throw something in here, uh, Joe. That's... I, I've seen trading programs, like trading systems trade, and they look great and you go and you trade them live and they don't perform as well and a lot of that has to do even though you know you can take the notional value the four hundred thousand dollars worth of spy uh that that you might be comparing your performance to or you can just compute the notional value you know it's a, the the s and is yeah. at 2850 or 2858 2868 times 50 
$50 per point, that gives you your notional value times the number of contracts. Yep. And if you look at the proportion that way, it does fall into line with what, you know, you would expect from a, a, a normal investor. Of course, with futures, you don't have to put up the full value of, of that portfolio. So there's a ton of leverage there. But also, when you take a kick to the teeth, it actually factors into those numbers very dramatically and very quickly as well. So it's fantastic if you are, you know, getting a 60% return in a month can be done under very specific circumstances and it's fantastic when things, the moons and uh, all the Jupiter aligns and all that stuff. Yeah. But you can't base a, the, uh, I think your point, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, can't base your career as a trader or your business plan on that. Is is that really the point that you're making or am I changing, putting words in your mouth? No, no, that, that is the point. I'm just saying have reasonable expectations for what is feasible. Don't just assume that you're going to be able to generate 60% returns on a, in a month because it's just, it's just it, it, not only that, just consistently you're not, maybe you did it in February, you know, or March last year when we had this huge volatility, but you're not, it's going to be very difficult for you to do that consistently. And if you can do that consistently, step back for a second, ask yourself, why isn't everybody else doing this consistently? Mm -hmm. Like, why are all these big funds making only 20% a year? You know, they're just leaving all that money on the table because they're all stupid. Like, I mean, come on. Like, it's, that's not why they're not doing this. There's, I mean, there's obviously, as we were saying, there's structural issues to it. But... The other thing is, the, the other big point, though, I think, is just, just like, you have, you can just run, and, and this is just backing into, like, a risk of ruin type of calculation, and just looking at your capital base, you know, let's just say you had that, that $20,000 in your account, or whatever, whatever it is, but we'll just use 20 for right now, because that's what we're using for three contracts. If you're using $20,000, and you're risking 2% of trade, that's $400, that's $400 that you have at risk on the trade, right? And it's basically 50 points for the ES, and it's three contracts. So you're basically risking two and a half points per trade, which is it's roughly what you likely need to put your stop at. So the natural, like you, you, if you have a $20,000 account, you can't be risking, if you can't be taking on, let's just say, 20 contracts because if you're taking on 20 contracts what percentage of your risk capital are you risking you know you're risking at this you're risking six times seven times what you're uh, what you can afford to risk so it, it draws back into like what percentage of your capital is at risk per trade because that matters because just by pure randomness and probability you will vastly increase your probability of ruin if you start risking over a certain percentage amount. So your ability to lever that capital, even though futures are inherently levered, is limited. And that's just my broad point on this. Just have reasonable okay. expectations in the end. Okay. Uh, do the math for yourself. I believe this is the last question. Oh, let me check. <laughs> I don't want to eat my words. No, it's not. Um, so I, wanna, I always want to ask this question. Uh, and I know we've gone way over our time here, but a very dear person to you, son, daughter, niece, nephew, whatever, comes to you and wants to learn to trade. 
given your experience and how you got to the point where you are now and your exposure to convergent members and so on, what would you prescribe in order to make this as quick and productive as possible? So I think that no matter what periodicity, no matter what method that you trade, whether it's futures, options, equities, fixed income, one month, one minute, two years, you can't get away from the probability and randomness that's involved in this business. So in, in so many of the emotional difficulties that people encounter in trading stems from their inability to be able to think probabilistically, not understand it intellectually, which many I think do understand, but to emotionally and, and viscerally really feel what it means to think probabilistically, that's the difference between the traders that generally make it and that and those that don't. So my first recommendation would be we've got to get you to understand randomness. We've got to get you to understand that any given trade doesn't really matter. So I would first like drill that concept into them and drill the kind of the coin toss type of exercise into them. Maybe it's on a simulator. Maybe it's just, I want you to just do this for one month, randomly long and short, just randomly or based whatever your gut is and keep a mechanical target and stop and just execute this. And after one month, see what your results are. And I think that really will instill the fact that like, wow, I could get decent results and I'm just like going off of my gut or I'm just randomly flipping a coin. And it starts to give you respect for for probability and randomness. And that's gonna that's gonna help you and carry you no matter what type of method you, you ultimately select. And I think the you know the second thing I would say is learn how markets work. And by that I don't mean learn technical analysis, learn fundamental analysis, learn what a moving average is. No. <clears throat> I mean drill down into the basics. What is a market? How are orders filled? Who <clears throat> is transacting in these different markets? Why? Because markets are driven by psychology. They're driven by, at its very core, supply and demand. And when you get a good grasp of understanding why people are doing things or having a sense of why they're doing things, you will understand the auctioning process better. And psychology is what drives markets. The psychology of expectations is what drives markets in any periodicity. So understand and learn that. And then I would say the third thing is take a good look. And once you know that, you want you know how markets work, you started to get appreciation of probability. Now you need to drill down and like what method is, is right for me. You know, maybe option trading or swing trading is not right for you. Maybe you need a faster, more momentum-based market. Maybe you like trend following. Maybe you like the the analysis that, that goes into fundamental valuation. Take a step back and look at yourself and say, what have I been good at in in, in my prior life, in my life, what have I, when I was studying things, when I was working, like what did I really enjoy doing? Did I enjoy building models, working out problems? Did I like accounting? Like maybe that type of stuff suits you more for a research-oriented process. Think about how you process information. Are you driven by your intuition? 
Are you not? Are you driven by a mix? Do you need some sort of uh, stimulation, excitement, such that if you have to put on a trade and let it sit there for two year or two months, is that going to drive you crazy? Like, do you have to trade every second? Give a good look to that. Be honest with yourself, and then explore with the different styles. And when something feels right to you, then you settle into it. So those are those are the big key things. After you know all the time that I've spent doing this game. Those are the things that I really think are the most important. So the, 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 to summarize, the, the first point is understanding the role of randomness and the fact that, and how the markets work, uh, how, how things get filled and, and, and so on. Um, and, and the fact that you just can't get away from the randomness of it. Um, and, and the second is making sure you're aligning yourself with how and what you're trading versus just taking on what somebody else told you or you might, what you might have heard somebody else do. Those are the two points that you made, or did I miss something? Yeah, I mean, it was three points. Probability three points. and randomness, basically, how markets work would be the second one. And then Got the it. third is find what psychologically and intellectually satisfies you, which nobody else can answer for you. Right. You have right. to find that yourself. Last question. Are there areas of trading that you think should be put more in the spotlight? I think you kind of answered that maybe. Uh, put yeah. more in the spotlight to help traders work t towards their potential. Again, I think it's it's consider multiple periodicities. Don't just you know isolate yourself to one method. Everything can work and everything can fail in this business. Like you really need to find out what what works for you and like. You can make just as much money, if not maybe more, trading longer time frames. I can tell you, like, I've held, I've held stuff sometimes, like, for years. I mean, I'm not even joking, years. Like, I bought Apple and stuff back in 2008, and I've, I've held that thing for years. And at the same time, I'm trading at the tick level. So, you know, you can work in multiple periodicities. Don't let anybody think that you can't. And also, maybe one suits you more than another. So just like find out what syncs with you and how you think about things. And that, let that dictate where you gravitate towards. Don't let anybody else's style, you know, crimp yours, for lack of a better word. Very cool. That's a lot of information transfer. Um, and really, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for taking the time. We went over by a half hour, but I felt that it was important not to interrupt and to make sure that we got an idea of of everything that Joe um, had to share. Remember, Joe's uh, head trader. You can find him in our um, throughout our channels. He he participates all over the place. Uh, if you're tagging Tendex, make sure you tag with a capital. T at capital T E N D E X, so he's aware. Uh, if you're in, so that he's not going around searching for questions or whatever. Uh, but also, you can find him on Twitter at twitter.com/forward/slash/tendexcapital. That account's not so active; it used to be more active before. I think you got involved with us. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but Joe's thinking to uh, activate it again uh, soon. But there's yep. uh, one of the one of the best things that Joe puts out there, by the way, is look for first thing in the morning on head traders. He puts out a sheet 
that pretty much summarizes what I start with my trader bite with. You know, the market sentiment. He's got your your sigmas on there. He's got bigger time frame levels. He's got earnings. He's got what count. You know, it's a it's a it's a very good and comprehensive um, setup sheet for the day. Look for that. He posts the image every morning. It's a valuable tool that uh, that there it is. He just puts it up every day. But also, I want to remind you that um, Joe is taking off on vacation. We have it actually on the calendar of events in your member site. I think you take off on Friday, right? Uh, right, Joe? Yep. Yeah, Friday this week. You're going to be gone until after Labor Day. So in case he's quiet, in case he's ignoring, you know, you think he's ignoring you or not responding to your private messages or questions, it's because he's not, uh, not going to be with us. Uh, starting with the end of the week for his uh, for his summer break. So thanks a lot, Joe, for coming on here and uh, just sharing your wisdom and experience. And we'll catch you and everybody else in the room. Cheers, everybody. Sounds great. Thanks.